0: Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News.
1: Welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis, and joining me on the panel this week are Cindy Sane, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent, and Steve Reddish, VOA Executive Producer. Welcome, Cindy
2: and Steve. Thanks for having us.
1: Well, here are the issues. During a nearly two-hour press conference, President Joe Biden told reporters he accomplished more than any other president in his first year and vowed to take his legislative wish list, including parts of his Build Back Better agenda, out on a campaign trail this year. The president faces low approval ratings largely due to an economic recovery dragged down by inflation and the ongoing surge of the COVID-19 pandemic. Senate Republicans blocked a sweeping election bill, setting up a doomed push by Senate Democrats to try to change the chamber's legislative filibuster. Senators voted 49 to 51, falling short of 60 votes needed to advance the legislation that combines the Freedom to Vote Act, which would overhaul elections and campaign finance laws, with the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which strengthens the 1965 Voting Rights Act. The Biden administration is stepping up the federal government's COVID-19 response amid tentative signs that regions that were hit early by the Omicron surge are seeing a slowdown in infections. The administration announced plans to make 400 million free N95 masks available at pharmacies and community health centers countrywide. During a visit to Kiev, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken urged Western nations to remain united in the face of what he called relentless Russian aggression against Ukraine and reassured Ukraine's leader of their support. The House committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol subpoenaed former President Trump's personal lawyer Rudy Giuliani, along with three other campaign attorneys linked with efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. Well, those are the issues and let's get started. Steve, President Biden gave his first press conference of the year at a time where two key parts of his agenda stalled in Congress. His standing in voter opinion surveys has steadily fallen since the chaotic withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan last September. So what would you say were some of the highlights of the press conference?
2: He defended his administration's handling of COVID, acknowledged that there haven't been enough tests. He took responsibility, saying that we didn't see that and we didn't have enough tests out there. Now we're working on that, along with masks to handle the Omicron variant. He also defended against criticism that schools are being closed. Biden said over 95 percent of the schools are open and was very emphatic about how his administration has tackled the COVID issue. He also took on inflation and said, yes, this is a problem tried to explain how and why prices have risen so high for some of the basic goods and services Americans use on a daily basis. He described it as a significant issue, but he also said it could be addressed through his Build Back Better legislation of social safety net programs and climate change. But that stalled in the Senate because of the 50-50 split in that chamber. The other thing that I thought was significant is he also promised that he'll be traveling through America during his second year in order to take the political debate to the people and to Republicans, who he criticized for blocking nearly every single agenda effort. One other thing that I thought was important, it was a nearly two-hour news conference. He stood there taking questions for almost two hours. And I see that as his attempt to try to show the country that indeed he does have the stamina necessary for the job of the president of the United States, despite his age and despite a lot of criticism that started well before the election, during the campaign, of whether or not he had both the wits and the will to be able to handle the job. And I think he went out on Wednesday to prove that he is up for the job.
0: And, Cindy, your take on it. Yes, well, I agree with a lot of the things that Steve said. And he defended his record, uh, especially, as Steve said, on COVID and on inflation. And uh, he was asked if he had uh, overpromised You know, when he came into office saying that it was going to be a transformative presidency and that he was going to transform the nation's infrastructure. And he got a little defensive there saying that he had not overpromised and pointing to the huge infrastructure bill that did get passed and also to the successes on COVID and other issues. And he was very strong in saying, look, what is it that the Republicans are actually doing? He called out specifically Senate Republican Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who has just vowed once again to make sure that there are no successes in the Biden presidency for political reasons for the next midterm elections. And he said, you know, just think about that. He said, what exactly is Mitch McConnell for? What is the Republican Party for? And is it this is their only thing they don't want to help the country and the problems that they face? That was part of his argument.
2: One of the things that surprised me most was he did not tout his biggest accomplishment, which is getting an infrastructure bill, legislation that will help pay for major highway construction and repair, railroads, ports, airports, as well as broadband and getting it to the rest of the country. Biden didn't spend a lot of time touting that success and the success of getting 19 Republicans, at least in the Senate and several more in the House of Representatives, to vote for that bill. I was kind of surprised that he didn't tout that accomplishment. But he certainly was very strong in saying he's going to take the political argument of what are you for? Here's what I am for. What are you for? He's going to take that to the public and to Republicans during this second year of his presidency.
1: Yes. And at the same time the press conference was going on, Senate Republicans blocked a sweeping election bill, setting up a doomed push by Senate Democrats to try to change the chamber's legislative filibuster. Steve, what would you say is the next step?
2: It's really hard to see where the next step is. Biden, in his news conference, acknowledged that he has not been able to get two key Democratic senators to agree to end what's called the filibuster, which is a Senate rule that it requires 60 of the 100 senators to agree to debate and vote on anything, that you need 60 votes to move anything in the Senate. Right now, the Senate is is divided 50-50 with Democrats having the edge in a tie vote with the vice president being able to cast that tie vote and break the tie. So Democrats could have, if those two Democrats, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, agreed to change the rules, there could have been a simple majority to change the rules for voting rights, and they could have passed that bill. So I do not see a way forward for a voting rights bill to come out of Congress this year. I do see room for the Biden administration and Democrats to work with Republicans to change some other election rules, specifically regarding how electoral votes are counted in the Senate, which was really the key attraction to the January 6th attack to stop that counting of those electoral votes. That's a possibility. But for broad voting rights legislation, I just don't see it in the way that Congress is comprised right now.
1: Also, in looking at the historic value of this, the number two Senate Democrat, Dick Durbin of Illinois, said the debate on this has a historic value. He says it really gets to the heart of who we are as a nation, and I think members should be on the record. So I guess he's pointing out the historic value of this. But how is this really resonating with voters?
2: As far as resonating with voters, It's really hard to tell because so much of the debate is fractured. As far as voting in America is concerned, all 50 states have individual laws as far as how voting is handled, who counts the votes, who certifies the votes. Each state has their own system. The voting rights legislation was going to create rules that govern the whole country. So I would think that While many people in the country do favor some sort of blanket voting rights legislation, we used to have it, and that voting rights legislation has been eaten away by various different court rulings. So this new voting rights legislation is supposed to reform and try and buttress what has already been there. And so far, there doesn't seem to be the kind of traction necessary as far as a big push from most of the electorate to get this done
0: i was just going to say kim it was one of the things that president biden mentioned in his press conference he said who would have ever thought that not a single Republican would vote for to secure Americans' voting rights. And there's been a lot of tension, and rightly so, on the two uh, more conservative Democratic senators, as Steve said, Senator Sinema and Senator Manchin, who blocked this change on the filibuster on this 60-votes threshold. But also it's true that not a single Republican voted for this voting rights thing and several democrats gave very impassioned speeches and said look it's not simply not true what senator manchin is saying that the senate never changes the 60 vote threshold rule and i believe it has been changed 167 times it was changed when the republicans had the majority to get justices approved. It was changed just recently to raise the debt ceiling. It's been changed time and time again. And so a lot of Democrats were saying, look, this is simply disingenuous. This is not true. These two Democratic senators and none of the Republicans are actually willing to vote to secure voting rights.
2: And there are several Republican senators currently in the Senate who previously have voted for an extension of the previous Voting Rights Act, and Biden intends to pressure those senators as to why they won't vote for this Voting Rights Act.
1: Really good points that you all brought up there. Also, the Biden administration is planning to distribute 400 million free non-surgical N95 masks through pharmacies and community health centers. However, it appears the highly contagious Omicron variant has already reached its peak here in the U.S. as in other countries. So in looking at this, is this too little too late at this point with the mask
2: distribution? Possibly. It seems like putting a Band-Aid on a gushing wound and not being able to really staunch it the way that you want to. But I think what this is signaling is the Biden administration's change in philosophy, change, in strategy as far as COVID is concerned. We've been hearing a lot of reports lately that inside the administration, they're working on a new strategy, but we haven't really seen a lot of details. What we've heard is a shift to more of a live with COVID strategy, and that includes the free tests, as you mentioned, the free masks, and moving away from the need and and the message of vaccinate, vaccinate, vaccinate. Right now, 76% of the American population has gotten at least one shot, only 64% are fully vaccinated, and those numbers haven't moved much in the last three or four months. So I think what we're going to see is this is the beginning of a new strategy of living with the virus rather than trying to defeat the virus.
1: Yes, absolutely. And then when you look at several states that have already dropped their mask mandates, as you pointed out, and in deep Republican areas hardest hit by COVID-19, there's really little appetite for mask wearing and other preventive measures that have been heavily politicized throughout the pandemic. So when you consider these states who've already dropped the mask mandates, how would they respond to this distribution of masks?
2: I think the response is going to be thanks, but in those states, if you want to wear them, wear them. If you don't want to wear them, you don't have to wear them. Masking has been a real political third rail, so to speak. It's very divisive in many communities. In many communities as well, it's welcomed. Please, mask up. We want everybody to be masked. And I don't know if there's going to be any kind of opportunity to create mask mandates in the future now that so many states have dropped them.
0: Right. It'll be interesting to see Kim. I mean, usually it's amazing people of all political persuasions are very happy to pick up free things. And if it's free test or free mask, I think that this is something that is tangible that people will see. Oh, okay, the Biden administration is doing something. And I know in my household, you know, people were trying to get together with at least a small group family members or whatever over the holidays. And we were looking for tests and it was hard to to find tests, even to purchase them. So it is a little bit late coming after the holidays, but perhaps better late than never. And I think it is an effort by the Biden administration to say, look, you know, we are competent and we are getting a handle now on COVID-19.
1: Very good points. Well, it's time now for a quick break. And when we return, President Biden's top diplomat meets with European allies to stress the importance of continuing a diplomatic path to de-escalate tensions with Russia. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype. Cindy Sane, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent, and Steve Reddish, VOA Executive Producer. Well, Cindy, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has called on Russia to take a diplomatic and peaceful path as fears mount of a new invasion of Ukraine. So how far has his trip to Europe helped alleviate these tensions over Russia?
0: Well, Kim, tensions are very high right now, and this is an all-out diplomatic push by Secretary Blinken going to Ukraine in the middle of this Omicron variant, showing about as, you know, as forcefully as he can with his own presence, saying that the U.S. is unwaveringly supporting its ally, Ukraine, and saying that Russia will face very serious consequences if they invade. Blinken is also once again coordinating the European position with a visit to Berlin and meeting with several different allies there, and is also meeting with the Russian foreign minister. So tensions are high, though, and Blinken has said that Russia could invade Ukraine at short notice, has 100,000 troops stationed along their common borders and could double that number very quickly. President Biden was also asked about the Ukraine-Russia tensions. And he also said that, well, he surprised some by saying that he feared that President Putin would invade Ukraine and he said if it were a small incursion that the allies would have to decide what to do and but if it were a major invasion that Russia would pay very very severe consequences and this has caused uh, a lot of consternation also in Kiev among Ukrainians saying this is almost an invitation to Russia to do a small incursion and the white house quickly put out a statement saying no any Russian aggression would face severe consequences. And Vice President Kamala Harris has been on TV saying, you know, the U.S. has been very clear that any Russian aggression against Ukraine will face consequences from the U.S. and its NATO allies.
2: It's a major walk back by the White House to try and do some damage control from what President Biden kind of off the cuff in his usual style just kind of said the quiet part out loud.
1: Yes, absolutely. And Russia has made a list of demands to Western governments, including that Ukraine should never join NATO and that the defensive alliance's military activities should be limited in member states, including Poland. Still, what is it that
0: Russia is wanting Russia has asked for written confirmation that the U.S. and NATO will not invite Ukraine to join and ask for written answers to several other things. And Blinken has said that he will not be providing, the U.S. will not be providing written answers. But that's one thing that President Biden, during his press conference, did suggest. He said This is one of Putin's demands that NATO not expand eastward and that Ukraine not be allowed to join NATO. And he said it's not realistic that Ukraine is going to join NATO at any point in the near future. He said President Putin doesn't get to decide who joins NATO and who doesn't. But he said it's not realistic that Ukraine is going to join NATO anytime in the near future, signaling to Putin, if this is what you're worried about, that you don't need to worry about it. And the U.S. has also dangled some carrots to Putin saying, you know, if you're worried about missiles being stationed in Eastern Europe, we can talk about. There are definitely things that we can talk about. But you don't get to decide who joins NATO and who doesn't. How long can these talks go
1: on and will these talks keep Russia from invading Ukraine? For instance, have all diplomatic avenues been exhausted?
0: Well, so far they haven't. As long as there are still meetings in the works between Secretary Blinken and Foreign Minister Lavrov, then diplomacy is still what Americans are saying is the preferred option. And Blinken is coordinating again and again with European allies and NATO allies to probably determine exactly what kind of sanctions that Russia would face. And we've also had the U.S. Congress getting in on the act saying that, yes, Congress also is for punishing even President Putin himself, sanctioning Putin himself and Russia's banking sector. So they basically won't be able to get hold of U.S. dollars if he does, in fact, invade Ukraine. And you have had some in Congress, particularly some Republican leaders, critics of President Biden, saying, look, Mr. Biden, you need to focus more on stopping Putin from invading Ukraine and preventing it than from talking about what's going to happen afterwards, and suggesting let's send some more military equipment to Ukraine now before any invasion. And Britain has sent anti-tank missiles to Ukraine this week. The U.S. is providing money, and some are saying let's do more to stiffen Ukraine's resistance ahead of any potential invasion.
1: Yes, and let's get our last topic in. The House Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol subpoenaed former President Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, along with three other campaign attorneys linked with efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. The subpoenas show how the investigation is closing in on Trump's inner circle. So far, what has been the response from any of the four people and what information is the committee looking for?
2: I wouldn't expect Giuliani and any of the other campaign lawyers to willingly show up and answer questions from the committee. I I expect them to challenge them legally. The committee is going to have to decide like it has had to decide with other recalcitrant people of interest that they want to talk to. They're going to have to refer that to the Justice Department for prosecution because there's a lawyer to client privacy issue, it's going to be extremely hard for subpoenas to be then acted upon and these people going before the committee. I wouldn't expect that to happen for several months. They're still working on several other people. Another challenge the committee is having is getting fellow members of Congress to testify. At least four Republicans have been asked to answer questions before the committee, including minority leader Kevin McCarthy. All four of those Republicans are trying to hold back those questionings, say they're not going to cooperate with the committee. What the committee's next step is to get those members to testify is going to be an interesting process. One recent victory for the committee. The Supreme Court turned down a request by former President Trump to prevent various documents to get into the committee's hands. The chairman of the committee, Betty Thompson, said this is a big victory for the committee. They're going to go forward and look at all of these documents that they had requested.
1: And in addition, the select committee's members have said they will consider passing along evidence of criminal conduct by Trump to the U.S. Justice Department. So such a move known as a criminal referral would be largely symbolic, but would, increase the political pressure on Attorney General Merrick Garland to charge the former president. So, and just one last quick question, is this the ultimate goal is to charge former President Trump?
2: It may be for some Democrats, for others, getting to the bottom of what happened and not necessarily getting Trump in court and prosecuting him. But certainly being able to show that if it's true that he is the one who arranged all of this and orchestrated all of this, I think for many Democrats, just getting that out in a factual way and can convince many of the American public that that's what happened. If the committee can accomplish that, I think many Democrats would take that as a victory and not worry about getting former President Trump prosecuted.
0: I just wanted to add, Kim, that I think that the Supreme Court clearing the way for documents, the archivists, to turn over documents from former President Trump is very significant. And those records include presidential call logs from the January 6th, handwritten notes from Trump, speeches, draft videos that he made to the people who were storming the Capitol. So I think that, as Steve said, for the main goal of getting to the bottom of what exactly happened and who ordered this attack on the Capitol, I think this may be a very, very significant ruling by the Supreme Court.
1: Yes, and we will have to continue to follow developments on this investigation, and we'll have to close on that note. My thanks go to our panelists, Cindy Sane, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent, and Steve Reddish, VOA Executive Producer. I'm Kim Lewis, and thanks for joining us for Issues in the News.